old friends and welcome to the final episode of this season. Yes, this is the podcast that wines and dines fascinating people whilst we record the chat. This week we have a revered actor who doesn't disappoint. He co-wrote and played the lead in the film Hear My Song, starred in movies such as My Left Foot and The Crying Game, and on TV he's been keeping us on the edge of our seats in thrillers such as Ashes to Ashes, Blood, and six, yes count them, six seasons of the hit show Line of Duty. As the glorious superintendent Ted Hastings, there's only one thing he's interested in and that's catching bent coppers. Oh, and giving the greatest performance complete exasperation ever seen on the small screen. It is, of course, Adrian Dunbar. And we kept talking it up. And of course, there were people, other people who started moving in, like Dave Stewart, Nanny Lennox, and um, people like Lorraine would go, What is it about Crouch End that you're all up there, you know? <laughs> now, my route to Adrian Dunbar is through our mutual friend, the chef Richard Corrigan. Richard owns Bentley's, where I interviewed Eddie Marsan, and Corrigan's, where I interviewed Gary Barlow. And he also has the place I'm standing outside of, Daffodil Mulligan, which is a sort of urban bistro brasserie with small plates and some brilliant sugar pit pork, uh, located, incidentally, right on top of the tube lines out of Old Street. So you may hear the odd tube train rumble past. But the food is terrific. We're downstairs in the bar area, which is a kind of London version of the Dublin pub, Gibney's. It's an Irish love-in, and I think Adrian will be very comfortable here. Let's go inside. Adrian. How are you? Very well. You do, you've eaten here before quite a few times, haven't you? I've eaten here a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, I've been eating with Richard for... Richard Corrigan? Yeah, for many, many years. Adrian, you and I have actually done the same job at one point in our lives. Oh, right. Yeah. I worked in an abattoir. Did you? I did. I, I did mine very performatively, just for a couple of days for research for a book. Right. How did you come to work in an abattoir? What was it called? I think it was called Ulster Swift at the time. It was uh, Killing Pigs. So uh, Did you have a licence to do that or were you I was on. In... I was on the kill line. You were on the kill line, OK. Yeah. How long were you doing this job for? I did that job for about 18 months. I was playing at a ba- in a band at the time as well. I was playing with an Elvis Presley impersonator <laughs> called Frank Chisholm. And uh, so I was out sort of two and three nights a week with him all over the place in Ireland. And I came in, and one day I kind of fell asleep, I think, on the job. But I was earning slightly more with the band. They brought me into the office and said, look, you're going to have to make a decision here, thinking they kind of had me over a barrel. And uh, I said, uh, all right, then, you know, give me, a, <laughs> give me my cards. And I kind of flounced out, uh, not knowing quite where, what, was, what was going to happen to me. You know, I, I started a three-piece... Showbiz was calling. Well, it was. I thought I was going to do something in music. You know, I, I really shouldn't have been in the abattoir, really, because, uh, but, but it was good money and it was a job. And, uh, you know, but it didn't put me off. Well, I was going to ask you, did it have any impact? No, not, none at all. None at all, you know. Um, well, I'm glad it hasn't put you off, your, you know, various things, because we have the menu in front of us. Yes, absolutely. Which is a, a mixture of small plates and large plates. I know you've eaten here a couple of times. Yes. What right. do you fancy doing? A, a few small plates and a large? Yes. Uh, what, are you, what are you looking at? I, well, I'm always, when I'm at Daffodil Mulligan, I'm always looking at the salt chilli fried chicken because it's so damn good. Oh, right, OK. Pig cheek? Why not? Let's go for that because that's always good. And char-grilled octopus? Done. Sand. We put all of those. This is Cleo that. who's uh, going to be looking Hi, after Lillian. us today. Hiya, Cleo. Hi, Cleo. You well? Yeah, not too bad, thanks, darling, yeah. Are you ready to order some food, James? 
So, if I get these right, the charcoal octopus, the fried chicken, the stone bass ceviche, and the the pig skit of the pig pig's cheek. cheek. Yeah. yeah. Let's see if we get through that. Then we could share a sugar pit pork. Yes, perfect. And you want to try the creamy mashed potatoes. Oh, yeah. You're just telling us, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Um, do you want a glass of wine? or? Uh, I wouldn't mind something fizzy, actually, just actually. Yeah, absolutely. Two bubbles? Yeah. 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 Perfect. I tend to avoid date stamping these conversations because oh. I like them to exist for as long as possible. But we are speaking the day after there was a no-confidence vote in our dear Prime Minister. Yeah. You became somewhat involved in Boris Johnson's interesting past few months Mm. when you voiced a video for the press group led by Donkeys... Yes, that's ..around Partygate. Mm. And I thought it was intriguing, because you're not actually name-checked in this video. No. It's, it's, It's... Well, do you want to explain what it is? Well, what it, what it is, is, uh, and I mean, of course, I can neither confirm nor deny my uh, participation. <laughs> OK. <laughs> um, uh, however, they are a pressure group. And, you know, a lot of us believe that Boris Johnson should not be there anymore. I think it's just ridiculous, you know, if he was the CEO of any organisation in London, he would have been you know, we would have left the post long ago for his transgression. So I think, you know, when it, when it was proposed to us that we, that we do something, it was a no-brainer for us all. Uh, I think they probably approached Jed Mercurio first. So the writer of Line of Duty was, was approached to... So th- this video is basically castigating the then Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Cressida Dick, for not investigating the parties at Downing Street. Yes, correct, correct. We felt that that was uh, a huge oversight, you know, in democracy, that, uh, you know, it felt as if the Prime Minister was able to reach out and uh, get the Met Police to do his bidding on this. And so we felt that, uh, you know, we should join with... Uh, the pressure group and uh, push him and push both of them to kind of explain their actions and uh, subsequently she's left her post. I mean, we would hope after last night that his position was going to be quite untenable. However, he has showed a remarkable limpet-like quality. <laughs> slippery. Of, of, of slippery, yes, of, of, of basically saying, well, you know, all that's happened, but I really think we should move on now. I mean, subsequently, you know, the Met actually did investigate all the parties. But what intrigued me about it was you're right, you're, you're not credited, uh, nor is the character that you sound like credited. Mm. Because there's no claim that this is mm. D.S. Hastings... That's right. ...saying this. Yeah. But the delivery, and obviously your voice, mm. it's as if the character from Line of Duty that you play has become a moral voice of certainty for Britain. Does that sound a bit grandiose? It does sound a bit grandiose. <laughs> it does, but... On I'm, the, holding, I'm holding to it. But... OK, but no, on the, on the other hand, the, the character did become someone who, uh, across the series, who the country thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did have someone in charge who had kind of a moral core, a kind of backbone, uh, who would do the right thing? Uh, even though it might, you know, be detrimental to themselves at any particular time that they'd step up and, and do that. And I think that's kind of what's happened with Ted Hastings. He, you know, Jed kept placing him in and putting him at the centre of big moral questions that we all have. And 
seeing how he navigated that. Thank you. Glass of bubbles, fizz. Champagne is turned up. Glass of fizz, yeah. Cheers. Yeah, your health. Very good health. But it's, it's an intriguing thing, isn't it? As an actor, you take on a role... We want you to play a copper. You're leading uh, an anti-corruption squad (laughs) in some regional city. Six series later, it becomes much more than that. It becomes this voice of a certain, of a certainty and a moral rescitude that the country seems to lack. The words are put into my mouth by Jed Mercurio. I mean, I have some work on the script, but minor changes only. So the you know the words it's coming from Jed. So it's his kind of, it's his take on things. Going from one series to a second is one thing, but when you start getting into four or five or six, Mm. then you're creating a whole universe, aren't you? Mm. Uh, With a lot of expectation from the public on your shoulders. How's it been dealing with that, that element of the public prints, you know, commentators, people talking, destination television? Yeah, Destination TV, yeah, yeah. Particularly in the age of streaming, frankly. Well, that's right. I mean, we did we did something that probably people thought wasn't going to happen again, which was that kind of people watching a programme live because of the twists and turns that were in it. I remember Cliff Parisi uh, at one point in EastEnders was doing something really nasty to somebody. And we were walking along the street in Crouch End and somebody went, Oi, you, leave her alone, you bastard, you know, like that. I thought, God, this is serious, the way people get involved with stuff. And so, therefore, I count myself lucky that most most of the people I know like the character of Ted Hastings, like, love the series. So, therefore, when I'm approached by the public, it's usually with a big smile and, oh, my God, it's you, and, you know, can we have a a photograph and so forth. I mean, having said that, I've just been to Mallorca and I purposely booked myself into a... A place where there's only Germans. So, uh, but did you still get recognised? I got recognised a couple of times <laughs> by the Germans. No, a really lovely woman from Paisley in Scotland, and uh, and and uh, yeah, actually another couple from Edinburgh in Scotland. But everybody seems, you know, the police like it. They seem to like it. You know, they're always giving us a wave and a wink when we're walking about. When, when you recently did the cop car. Blues and Twos pull up next to you recently. And yeah, show. that's right. Yeah, they came flying down the, the Highgate West Hill, pull up and, oi, Ted! You know, and I'm oh, evening lads, you know, come on, you know, look lively. And, uh, yeah, so it's... Uh, <laughs> I'm moving things around because Cleo's bringing food. Thank you very much. Yeah. There is your charbroiled octopus there for you and oh, your salt good. and chili fried chicken. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll move things closer to you. Right. So you can get in. Is that the chicken? Is that's it? the chicken. Wow, that's, a, that's hardly a small plate, is it? Well, there's two of us, Adrian, and we're, <laughs> we're growing boys. <laughs> yeah, Very good. You there's your pig cheek skewers mm. and your brown curry sauce. Wow. Oh, I have one more, and that's you. Sound. Back in the day, you got involved in screenwriting with Peter Chelson. Yeah. Hear my song in '91. Uh, yes. Won you a BAFTA nomination. Yeah. But how did, how did, you know, you would have been. Dare I say it, quite the young man at the time. Mm. How did you end up writing a script? Well, Pete and I were both in uh, a play at the, the Royal Court in Liverpool. We kind of hit it off uh, together. He, I mean, he's got that Lancashire sense of humour. Then one day he called me up. He said, look, he'd, he'd done a really good short film set in Blackpool called Treacle with Stephen Tomkinson. And the BBC had approached him and said, look, there must be something else you can do in Blackpool, blah, blah. And he, he said, well... 
My parents, you know, they owned a play, uh, an antique shop called the Golden Age and everybody used to come in that was under the North Pier or something like that. And Joseph Locke used to come in. The great tenor. The great tenor. And, uh, you know, maybe I could do something about Joseph Locke because he's got a really interesting story. So he phoned me up and said, yeah, Joseph Locke, ring him. I said, yeah, we had all his LPs. My dad loved him, he loved them, because my father loved tenors. So he was a kind of popular classical singer, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was, well, yeah, he was an incredible performer. I mean, a showman. I mean, he could, just one of those people who could get away with stuff. You just couldn't believe that he just had this gift. And um, so anyway, I started, I said to Pete, yeah, all right, let's, let's start working on that. And the two of us, because we had the same sense of humour and, we, you know, and we decided to write a comedy. And, you know, Joe's big thing was that he, he cheated the tax man. Well, you know, that's kind of all right, isn't it? You know, that is what happened. He was done for it, wasn't he? He was done for it originally. He had to come to a deal with the, with, with, with the tax, man, tax man here because he was living sort of in exile in Dublin. And the, the film is all about me going off to kind of find him and bring him back to fulfil a... Uh, a, a wish of my girlfriend, played by Tara, the wonderful Tara Fitzgerald. You know, it's just a very, very, you know, sound, funny yeah, little it's film. A, it's, it survives, you know, it survives. Really, it really does. But I might be putting my toe in the water again uh, regarding a script. I'm, you know, talking to Vicky and Martin and Irving Welch and a few people about the possibility of writing something about James Connolly, the revolutionary, yeah. OK. Th there's a collection of names there, so we've got... Yeah. You know, Martin Compton, Vicky McClure, right, they, they make sense. And then Irving Welsh? Irving Welsh. Uh, train spotting? How, how does he fit into well, this uh, little narrative? Well, uh, Irving fits in because, you know, of Edinburgh and James Connolly and the fact that he's a very good friend with Johnny Owen, who's a broadcaster and Vicky's boy uh, partner. And um, they, you know, and uh, Johnny uh, works with TalkSport. He's got a great show on, on a Sunday morning that we listen to. And I've been on a few times, and uh, you know, and Irving's a great friend of his. And it does sound, from all the things I've read and all the stuff I've watched and listened to, that you are bound together now as quite the group of people. As mm. it's more than oh, there's a show we work on. Oh, very it's much so. I mean, I'm I'm seeing both of them this evening. Martin's in from Las Vegas. Becky's down from Nottingham, and uh, and I'm down from Highgate. And the three of us will meet and have. Uh, you know, have a bite to eat. Uh, probably not as good as this, I have to say. So where are you going to go for dinner tonight with Martin and Vicky? Well, Martin's staying down in Covent Garden, so the suggestion is that we go to Dishoom. It has to be said, Dishoom is is no bookings. It's You you have to queue along St Martin's Lane. I know, that could be quite difficult when the three of us get together. That sometimes creates a bit of a stir. I mean, we didn't realise it until, I think one day we went... And that's the thing about social media. We went into a bar in Belfast and we looked in and I went, great. We all came in because it was empty, except for two guys in the corner and the barman. How long did it take to fill up? Half an hour. <laughs> uh, you go out repeatedly for curries, don't you? Isn't that we love a curry. That's, that, is that Jed's thing or is that? That's Jed. He's, you know, the Midlands loves a curry. Well, he loves a curry. Actually, you can hear him eating a curry with me because he's done an oh, episode of Out to Lunch where we did it in lockdown and I had to get him sent one from uh, a very good one from a place called Dustan in Epsom. He was very happy, Portcheek Vindaloo. Um, but I've often got the sense, and in fact, from talking to Jed, that he is... Uh, 
I don't want to use the word controlling as a as a pejorative, but he is he is the creator and the writer and keeps a, a tight lead on everything that happens around you for line of duty. I'm talking about it in the present tense, by the way, on the on the idea that there might be a seventh. I think there will be something else. And I think he does he is a showrunner in the American sense, and that he's across everything. And we only have one writer, it's him. So that's quite good. You don't have to do the work on Jed's scripts when they come in. There's you say you don't have work. to, but here's an, a, another question. Would it also be a bloody nightmare if you tried? He knows that if we have an issue, the three of us, it's probably worth looking at. And, you know, uh, consequently, over the course of all the series, you know, now and again, we've come and said, Jed, we really need a scene that describes this uh, otherwise, we don't feel that we can carry that through line. We need actually to stop for a moment and do a scene where this happens. And he'll look at it and think, right, OK, no, you're right, we do need that. But, but you make it sound like the three of you get together and work this through before going to talk to Jed. Well, someone will say, this feels a bit strange because, you know, blah, 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 and somebody else will go, yeah, I thought that. And go, yeah, I think we need to talk to Jed about this, you know, and we'll all, you know, and then we go out for a curry... And we say this, that and the other, and you go, yeah, fancy a cobra. <laughs> yeah, another three cobras, please. And uh, <laughs> so, but it's all, you know, he knows now that we're inside the characters and that, you know, anything that we do come up with. But thankfully, he's not slapdash. You know, thankfully, he, he works really diligently on his own work. And so when it arrives with us, it's usually in pretty good shape. Uh, I'm going to get you to pass the octopus down as you know. Take some and then pass right, it down. I will, will. I'm quite demanding yeah. at the table. Well, you're hungry, mate. Well, no, I'm just, I'm just aware that, you know, we've got dishes ordered and the kitchen's doing oh, God, stuff yeah. up there. Yeah, the kitchen's doing stuff. Right, good lad. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. You have just been the director of a Beckett festival, haven't you? Yeah. Were these things you were introduced to as, as a kid? Both Beckett and Oscar Wilde went to school in my hometown. So I was very aware of Beckett and Wilde from a very early age. It wasn't until I went to the Guildhall in 1980 that I saw my first production of a Beckett play, which was an all-female production of Waiting for Godot with actresses who I knew from my year. This thing that was so abstract in many ways was really moving me around and kind of, you know, making me feel things. And uh, I thought, how is this, this man doing this? What is... It is very spare prose and it's, it is tricky. It's difficult stuff, isn't it? You know, if you try and analyse everything and want to know the meaning of everything, well, then, you know, you're going to miss the experience of allowing words like music and situation to wash over you, to allow it to affect you emotionally. And, 
I mean, all the time he's just drawing, you know, your attention to the fact that, you know, it's a pretty difficult thing, life. You know, like the Eastern philosophers will tell you, you know, I mean, basically, we're just finding ways to amuse ourselves till it's over. And, you know, and, I mean, Sam is very funny because he understands that. The thing about it is, is that when you engage with Beckett, it's such a joyous thing. You come out feeling so alive and willing to grasp the nowness and be in the moment of life afterwards. You know, that's what I get out of it all the time. I don't find it depressing. I find, you know, asking yourself the fundamental questions about why we're here and what it's all about is liberation, really. We don't do it often enough. And I think Beckett allows us in there. Also, he is being... Beckett is being done consistently in war zones. See, his plays don't cost anything to put on. A table, two chairs, a hat. They're cheap. They're cheap. One light bulb. And so they can be done anywhere. Well, there could be some suggestion that you are having an adulterous affair drama-wise because you're about to play another policeman, Alex Ridley, in the ITV drama Ridley. Yes. Slight yes. demotion from DS to DI. Alex is a retired cop working somewhere in the north of England, probably north of Manchester, up in the Dales, somewhere like that. He's, you know, he would have had a kind of more colourful career probably working elsewhere, but he finds himself there and the tragedy in his life is that his wife and daughter both died in a horrific house fire. He wasn't there at the time and he, fe he feels he's guilty, he feels people, connect people who are connected to, to the incident feel guilty, and but there's a mystery involved in that. Uh, there's a guy in prison for it and he, he does visit him which is a bit strange. There's some strange things about his character which are interesting. But he also owns a jazz club with his longtime friend Annie, and he, he sings. Uh, I just thought that, I just loved the idea of the singing detective back in the day. Uh, it really got to me. I just thought, yeah, cause, because a detective who sings in a club and there's, you know, you have glamour and then people come into the club and, you know, people who are kind of with stories. Did, was it your input that said, why isn't he, why don't, why don't we make him a owner of a jazz club who yes, sings? Yes, absolutely. And then I thought we were going to go up to, I thought, right, I'll start looking for jazz in, in, in Yorkshire cause we, or Lancashire, that's where we're going to be. And I came across someone who I didn't know. I was ashamed to say this now, but I didn't know who Richard Hawley was. Oh, wow, OK. And I'd never heard any of Richard's... Sheffield based. Yeah, Sheffield, yeah. And I started listening to Richard's uh, work and thought, wow, I absolutely love the songs that this guy writes. And where he's singing them is kind of beautifully placed for where my voice is. And so Richard really, I mean, unbelievably allowed us to take three of his songs and we end each episode with a song or we start with a song. So there's a kind of, it's interesting in that respect. And the song has, all his songs are kind of are dealing with male grief, really. You know, it's like that place where Sinatra was. You know, you get that kind of a man alone stuff. So it's, uh, it really is interesting, uh, I think. You know, it's, it's different. Did you come close to getting involved in the writing of this, if you were so deeply involved in the conceptualising of it? Yes, I was very involved with, uh, you know, with, uh, like, script editing. And, and that happens when you're, when you're playing the lead. You kind of have to be across that. For example, 
Paul Matthew Thompson, our writer, also writes for Vera, and uh, you know he will tell you that Brenda, you know, after when the scripts come in, and indeed as revisions come in, Brenda will be all over that because your, she, Brenda Blethen, who's the you yeah, know on, in Vera, in yeah. Vera, and you know Brenda, you know, works on it, you know, because you have to. Things are done really quickly these days, and what you don't want to be doing is trying to fix everything in post. So you try and get what you're filming absolutely right. This is your sugarpit pork and your creamy mushroom. Oh, Jesus, yeah. So what I think I might do is slice up the sugarpit pork into manageable pieces. That's a good idea. Should I be mother? Oh, my God, that looks good, doesn't it? Well, this sugarpit pork comes yeah. from a great man called Peter Hannon. Oh, yes. Hannon Meats. Hannon Meats. In Moira. That's right. I know this. This uh, Rich, Richard talks about these guys. Yeah, um, and he's a he's a apparently a he's a great character, Peter. Uh, uh, Peter is a, an amazing character, and he's a, a great uh, ambassador for Northern Irish food. Moira. Yeah. The key thing is, though, you've stayed. I mean, you've lived in North London now for a very long time, haven't you? Oh yeah. Up in up in the People's Republic of Crouch End. Yes, indeed. Which. Uh, <laughs> Usually, for anybody listening who doesn't really know enough about Crouch End, is uh, normally people from Crouch End are desperate to tell you it's not on the tube. Um, it isn't on the tube. Yeah, it isn't on the tube, and that gives it a special sort of quality. It does. Uh, well, my, when myself and Neil Morrissey moved in there 25, 30 years ago, we'd go on this morning and we'd go on various programmes. And we start talking about Crouch End, because we both realised that we, we could kind of make it a place and talk about the ley lines and talk about all these kind of musicians and Was artists. he already in uh, Men Behaving Badly at this point? Yeah. Or, so uh, you and Neil, if ever you got the chance to go on to talk shows, morning yeah. shows, well, independently you know, of each other, would... It, oh, yeah. And we kept talking it up. And, of course, there were people, other people, who started moving in, like Dave Stewart, Nanny Lennox... Do you think you're responsible for Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox moving into Crouch? Well, I, I want to put this all together into one neat package, so let's just go with Myself it. and Neil both think we were the, the kind of the spearhead, the kind of advanced troops that talked Crouch End up. And um, people like Lorraine would go, what is it about Crouch End that you're all up there, you know? But it was a really held little bit of space in London. Gradually, it became a very trendy place, and still I, is. I don't know how we both found our way there. Oh, well, I met my wife, Anna, and um, she was living in Crouch End. You know, my wife, Anna, already had her son, Ted. He was about five, six at the time. And then our daughter, Madeline, came along. But that happened when we moved up to uh, Warwickshire for a couple of years, which was a bit of a mistake. Anna was working at the RSC, and we thought, oh, God, let's move to the country, it'll be great. We lasted two years, realised nobody was going to drop in and came back to London. You're bored. Oh. Bit bored and bit lonely out there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I remember once <clears throat> going to see Steven Spielberg and he said, before we started the meeting, he said, have you ever had buyer's remorse? And I said, no, what's that? He said, well, a couple of kids in the valley wrote down this kind of two-page idea about a family that goes, you know, on holiday because they're all dysfunctional and, the, 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 you know, the mother decides we should just go on a holiday for a weekend. And they go and they, on, it starts, you know, thunder and lightning. They don't know where they are. They go through a gate and it's a nuclear test site and they camp there for two or three days. And when they come back home, 
They've all got these special powers. The father can hear what the other two guys are saying in the business meeting, so he makes the right decision. The boy can jump unbelievably, so he's on the basketball team. The mother can think that the house tidy. And the daughter can do whatever, you know. I said, all right, that sounds pretty interesting. Is it? He says, yeah. He says, and I got into a bidding war with George Lucas over it. And he said, I paid $750,000 for it yesterday. And this morning, I have buyer's remorse. <laughs> so I kind of realized that what it, what it was. So you can, what you're talking about is buyer's remorse. And what were you seeing Spielberg about? Well, that was after we did hear my song, we went to LA and a lot of people, because it did so well in America, a lot of people wanted to see us, just meet us, you know, see who we were, who are these guys, because it was a really charming film and they got it when they saw it. You know, people like Steve Martin and people like that were really excited about it. Um, so yeah, so I got to, to meet the great Steven Spielberg for a moment. I mean, is, is London a good place to be from somewhere else? I think London's one of the great world cities. There's no question about it. But London has always been welcoming, I think, to people from outside. You, it gives you a chance. It's one of those cities that might be a bit hard to get going, but you make friends and the city will give you a chance. You know, work hard, it'll happen for you. And I've seen it happen for quite a lot of people. And that's not necessarily true of other cities in other countries. I think Sydney might be okay as a city that you might go to and, you know, start a business and do things like that. I don't think New York, I don't think America's like that. I don't think you can wander in there without a lot of dough behind you. You know, a, it's a myth, this kind of, you know, you know, you, you can make it good there. It's not, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. I mean, it's, uh, I think London's a much more, is a great city for that. And are you essentially at heart an optimist? about its progress or have recent events, the sort that you've been a campaigning voice on, either as yourself or Ted Hastings, it's, it's hard to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> are you an optimist that things can be okay? But I think London is always going to survive. I just, because I think there's so many creative people here. You know, it's that, you know, English sense of creativity of being able to kind of take something and do something with it and find an influence coming in, take it, mould it to your own, you know, way of thinking and kind of turn it into something else. You see that with cuisine, you see that with fashion, you see that with music. Really, really incredible sense of being able to take something and do something with it. And, and, and I think that's always going to be the strength of this city. Definitely. You, you mentioned music, so I'm going to bring this sort of full circle mm. from those days when you were performing with an Elvis impersonator. Yes, right. <laughs> to playing a jazz singer, jazz club owner in Ridley. Yeah. Is it fair to suggest that music has sustained you all the way through your career? I think that's absolutely right. And my mother, bless her, who died recently, said, where would we be without music? And it's true. Where would we be without music? It's abstract, it's international, it's immediate, it's emotionally engaging, and uh, you know, there's, there's no intellectualism about it. You can, I mean, people try and talk, you know, intellectually about music. I just think, no, stop it. You know, it's like fabulous abstract art, it's like Scully, it's like Pollock, it's like, you know, Rothko, you know, there's the color, what's the feeling? And music kind of does that. I think music is really, really 
the most powerful medium. Well, as we finish up our main courses, I mean, there is a piano behind the screen over there on the stage, so we could do a tune. Well, we do something, yeah, Yeah. definitely. (laughs) But for now, let me say, Adrian Dunbar, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you very much, Jay. It's been a pleasure. Huge thanks to Adrian Dunbar. What an absolute pleasure. Uh, We ate at Daffodil Mulligan near Old Street in London. Thank you so much to the whole team there for having us. To find out more, visit Daffodil Mulligan, and that's M-U-L-L-I-G-A-N.com. And the ITV drama Ridley is due to air later this year. And that is it for season seven of Out to Lunch, and what a season it has been. Uh, We will now be taking a break, at least for the summer, but hope to be back later in the year. Do follow us so that you get new episodes the moment they drop. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts and share the joy in the chat with the world. Send a link to a friend. They'll be very grateful. Also, if you comment and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, it really does help us to make more. Uh, And to keep you company while you're waiting for new episodes, remember there are over 100 of them to listen to, uh, so fill your boots. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The recording and mix engineer was Paul Brogdon. The post-production coordinator is Lily Hamley. The assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hocken. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. 